everyone. Welcome to HR Works, brought to you by BLR. I'm your host, Steve Bruce. HR Works provides clear, relevant, actionable information on topics that matter to HR professionals. When you're armed with best practices, plus the knowledge to keep your organization in compliance, HR works. HR execs are getting better and better at the basics of HR management, and many have also improved at the strategic level. To help us improve even more, we've asked Dave Ulrich, the man some call the father of modern HR, to join us. He and his colleagues have a new book out that can help HR leaders in a practical and research-based way. The book is called Victory Through Organization, Why the War for Talent is Failing Your Company and What You Can Do About It. Dave is the Rensis Lickert Professor of Business at the Ross School, University of Michigan, and a partner at the RBL Group, a consulting firm focused on helping organizations and leaders deliver value. He has consulted and done research with over half of the Fortune 200. He is the author or co-author of more than 30 books, including the number one Wall Street Journal business bestseller, The Why of Work. He has been named a top management thought leader in Business Week, Fortune, Financial Times, The Economist, and People Management, and he has been designated the number one most influential international HR thought leader by HR Magazine. Dave, welcome to HR Works. Boy, when you read that, Steve, I feel tired. Uh, <laughs> it's great to be with you and uh, look forward to our conversation. Well, the title of your new book says a lot, if I have it right. Although employers still need to engage in the war for talent, that is, hire the best people they can, that's really not enough today. It's what you do with your employees, how you organize them, that leads to success. Can you tell us how you came to this realization? We like data. I mean, it's, it's fascinating the world of analytics, and we can get into that. We like data. And over the last 30 years, we've collected seven rounds of data called the HR Confidence Study, but that's kind of a misnomer. In the last round in 2016, there were four of us, Dave Krasinski, Professor Michael Ulrich, our son who's now a professor, Wayne Brockbank, who's been on the study for 30 years, and myself. We collected data with 22 regional partners. So this is a very global data set, almost every region of the world. We got data from 1,500 businesses. Now, 300 of those are not-for-profit, so we didn't focus on the financial results of those as much or the economic results. And we had data from 32,000 people. So we did a very simple test. Um, we said, what's the quality of people within these 1,500 or 1,200 businesses? So do we have great talent? Do we have a great workforce? And we can measure, and we had measures. We did 360 instruments. How good are the people in these 1,200 businesses? Because we have 1,200 businesses, we also measured how effective is the business doing as an organization. So on the one hand, you got five fingers. You got the talent. You got the individuals. On the other hand, you got a fist. You got an organization. It's not the workforce. It's the workplace. It's not the, the, the confidence of the individual. It's the capability of the organization. And then we did a very simple regression on business performance. We have a six-item measure of business performance. And we said, which of these two most explains business performance? Interesting question. Very few data sets are able to test that. And we were shocked. Four to one organization. Four to one. 
the the individual talent is important, but the organizational capabilities and how well the organization works has four times the impact on business performance. So the headline of the book, victory through organization. You fight a war with people. You win the war through the organization that you create. Oh, this is interesting. So before HR execs can exert meaningful influence on HR and corporate strategy, they have to earn that proverbial seat at the table. And you say in the book that that's accomplished by being what you call a credible activist. Can you tell us how you go about achieving that status? You bet. One of the things, and again, I, I love the data because it gives us insights. A lot of people are building competence models. Uh, do I have these competencies or these competencies? We got in, less intrigued with the competence and more intrigued with the outcome. So it isn't having competence. What do you accomplish with the competence? I happen to like basketball, and I love to ask the question. If somebody throws an elbow on the court, have they done a, drawn a foul? I don't know, Steve, if you follow basketball or not. But if you throw an elbow, have you caused a foul? And the answer is no. you got to hit somebody. <laughs> I mean, you mm-hmm. can stand in the middle of the court and throw elbows all over, and the same is true in competence. It's not having a competence. It's using the competence to create a desired outcome. We have three desired outcomes. One of the desired outcomes is personal credibility, getting invited to the table. There's a business dialogue. Am I in HR invited to the dialogue? That's a very simple and interesting question. By the way, the second two outcomes, I'll just say them quickly. Am I serving stakeholders once I'm invited to the dialogue? Who do I serve? And number three, am I driving business results? So let's go back to the first one. Here's what we found. And again, I'm really sorry. I'm probably boring you to death with data, and I don't mean to do that. But we had 123 competencies of HR professionals. We did statistics. They came into nine buckets. One of those buckets is called credible activist. Here's what we found. If you're a credible activist, you're much more likely to be seen as personally effective, to be invited to the table. So what is credible activist? It means having a point of view. It means activists, taking a position, being willing to argue your position with evidence and data. It also means building trust. Again, use the two-hand logic. On the one hand, I'm trusted. I really like Steve. I like him so much that he's he's my favorite person. We're best friends. But on the other, and by the way, if that's all you depend on, it's not going to be very successful. On the other hand, he's also an activist. He pushes me. He challenges me. You can't challenge without trust, and you can't develop full trust without the ability to challenge. And so credible activist, as the word implies, has credibility, trust, relationships, and activists, a point of view. Those are the HR people who are invited to the business dialogue. Okay, so you're a credible activist, but the book goes on to say that getting a seat at the table as a credible activist doesn't guarantee that you'll have impact. For that, you need to be a strategic positioner. Can you describe what that means? You bet. Let's assume that you're a credible actress. You have a point of view. You get invited to the table. And your first business meeting is, how does our company innovate better? And how do we reduce cycle time for new innovations? And the scientists are talking about innovation, and you don't say anything. The second meeting is, how do we change stock price? You don't say anything. Third meeting, same thing. You don't get invited. You, once you're at the table and in the business dialogue, you've got to know who you represent. And here's what we found. 
if you represent the employee, and I'm the HR champion, that was a book I wrote that uh, I like the title, but it's not just the employee alone I represent. If I'm gonna represent the customer, the investor, the community, the business stakeholders of a company, I gotta be a strategic positioner. What does that mean? We found four things. Number one is you gotta know the business. Everybody says that, that's, that's HR. You gotta know the business, how do we make money? Number two, you've gotta know the strategy of the business. How do we differentiate ourselves? How do we win? Number three, you gotta know your stakeholders, your customers, your investors, your communities. And number four, you've gotta know the business context. What's happening within our industry? A good strategic positioner doesn't just speak the language of business, they can position the business to win in the future. That's the, that's the strategic positioner. And what we found is if you wanna serve customers and investors outside the company, we did a book called HR Outside In. It's, it's strategic HR is looking in a mirror and doing HR practices. Outside In HR is looking through the mirror as if it's a window to the external world and building HR to win in the marketplace. If you want to play in that space, you've got to be a strategic positioner. Credible activists get you in the door. Strategic positioner helps you engage with business stakeholders. Okay, and then you've mentioned uh, a third important facet of today's management, and that's the presence of paradoxes and the need for the HR exec to be a paradox navigator. How does one go about that? You know, it's really interesting. Again, we had three outcomes that we're curious about. Outcome number one is personal effectiveness. Be a credible out activist. Outcome number two is stakeholder value. And if it's the business stakeholder, be a strategic positioner. But a lot of business leaders say, I want my business to win and given the results. Here's what we found. Good HR professionals who drive business results navigate paradox. Paradox is so fun. We see it everywhere. Should a company be long-term or short-term? Yes. Should a company be top-down or bottom-up? Yes. Should we be global or local? Yes. Should we be centralized or decentralized? Yes. Should we focus on individuals or teams? Yes. Almost everything we find is that business is a series of choices. Should we zoom out or zoom in? Should we be divergent or convergent? The greatest impact on business that HR people can make is when they navigate those two guardrails. What that means is if my company tends to be too convergent, Everybody walks alike, talks alike, thinks alike. We gotta push divergence. On the other hand, if my company is too divergent, everybody does their own thing, we have to be convergent. If my business executives zoom out, they focus on the future, they see what's next, but they don't zoom in, I gotta focus on zooming in. If we zoom in but don't zoom out, I gotta do the other. And we found that the best HR professionals know how to create tension without contention, disagreement without being disagreeable and they navigate those paradoxes, never solving them. That's the view of navigation. I got to ask you, do you, have you ever, do you know, do you do boating at all? Is that one of your hobbies? Boating? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't boat, I'm not a sailor, but what I've been told is that when you navigate as a salesperson, you never, in fact, if you had a, a, a string from the, where you leave and where you return, you're almost never on the string. You're always navigating one side or the other based on how you sail. That's what HR people do who navigate paradox. What we've also discovered, not in our research alone, is that that's a key to good leadership, that a successful executive 
is not just emotionally intelligent. They don't just have learning and resilience, which is both, both of those are true. But because of that, they can navigate paradox. They can manage between these guardrails that make life both interesting and challenging. Well, I like the sailing metaphor. That, that one hits home. <laughs> I've never been on the line. So, in addition to <laughs> You know, the same these... I think is true. I've heard the same is true. I, I don't sail, but I sit on airplanes a lot. <laughs> if there's a string between where you are and where you're going, you're almost never on the line. You're always one side or the other navigating constantly the, the inherent tensions in the environment. I think the metaphor applies to business. Yeah, that's great. So, in addition to these three core drivers credible activist, strategic positioner, and paradox navigator. The book also mentions uh, six enablers. And although uh, they don't have the impact, I guess, of these three core drivers, they're still important descriptors of HR competencies. Can you briefly describe these strategic enablers and foundation enablers? Sure. We found, again, this is based on a lot of research, and we found there were three uh, strategic enablers. One is culture and change champion, and, and, and obviously that's somebody who can make things happen, manage change. The other is human capital curator, and we take the words curator. It's a word out of marketing. It's a museum word. You don't just manage human capital. You curate it. You nurture it. You develop it. The other is total reward steward, and that's not only financial but non-financial rewards. You're the steward of the well-being economically and socially of the employee. Those are the strategic enablers. The foundation enablers are compliance manager. There's always stories behind these. Um, Wayne Broadbank and I, who are the uh, senior statesman of this study, said, we don't want to talk about HR compliance. Dave Krasinski and Mike Ulrich said, guys, statistically, HR folks have got to do compliance. They've got to manage the administrative work. They've got to get the trains to run on time. if, if, if payroll doesn't happen, it's hard to get viability in the strategic offices, so that's there. The other one is technology and social media. How do we manage technology, and especially in the social media space, and we can go deeper in that. The other one is analytics and data integration and using data to make decisions. Those are, the, those are some of the foundation enablers that don't have the same impact on the outcomes, but they're still a piece of good HR work. Well, we're painting a good picture of uh, HR manager's strategic role here, I think. I, am, uh, I met you years ago um, when you were facilitating a meeting for HR managers and their company presidents. And I remember being taken by the fact that you were talking to the presidents about HR, and the presidents were all nodding in agreement and laughing, but some of the HR people were completely lost. So what advice do you have for HR managers about speaking the language of the C-suite? <laughs> I remember this session. It was, I thought it was a wonderful session sponsored by Sherm. I think Sherm did a brilliant job in that work. And in a book, I think the hardest line to write in a book is the first line because it's got to capture the book. Here's the first line of our Victory Through Organization book. HR is not about HR. HR is about the business. And so to the HR managers in the room, unless you can talk the language of business, that's the basics of strategic positioner, and really understand that HR is about the business, you don't succeed. And the C-suite executives don't listen. Once you talk that language, C-suite executives are delighted to hear you. I was with a group of chief marketing officers last week, and they're going, oh, here comes the HR guy. I said, you realize 
that a company's culture is based on its identity in the marketplace. You in the marketing field with brand and advertising create that identity. We in HR turn it into reality. We have to partner to make that work. And they go, duh. <laughs> and I'm going, that's when you start HR with the business, not with HR, you win. I'll do a quick aside. I've seen a lot of work in HR, and it would be fun to ask you in your in your 30-plus broadcast and these great podcasts you've done. Everyone right now is gaga over analytics. I mean, as soon as you say the word analytics, HR people's eyes light up and they start to glisten with glee. Here's our data. When we did analytics on analytics, when we studied, does the HR person's ability to do analytics have an impact on the business results? Our answer was no. And by the way, that just shocks people. Well, but it's analytics, it must be good. Here's the insight. If analytics don't focus on the business, they're wrong. Lots of HR analytics are around HR scorecards. It's HR for HR. They're around HR interventions. Let's do this to do better hiring. Unless the analytics start with the business, who are our customers? Why are they buying our product? What's our cycle time for innovation? Who are our investors? Why are they buying our stock or reducing our cost of capital? Unless you start with those outcomes, analytics becomes another false hope for HR. Our analytics of analytics is in the HR field today. Analytics is not having business impact. By the way, when I say that to the folks who study analytics, they get really angry. Well, <laughs> I'm an analytics person. I must be right. No. You've you got what statistics call type 3 error. You're measuring HR scorecards. You're measuring interventions of HR. You're not starting with business and showing how HR will drive business results. Well, you briefly mentioned there uh, a few analytic or metrics that you use, and I, I know you back up your recommendations with rigorous research. So are there any particular measurements you recommend for HR managers? Yeah. The, again, start with the business. The one that I have, uh, we've done a lot of work around customer. Net promoter score, for example, is one of the new customer metrics that we in HR should be close to. What drives net promoter score? Is it product? Is it, is it relationship with the customer, or is it our internal organizational culture that affects how we work with you? But the, And we've done work on that. The one I love right now is my previous book called Leadership Capital Index. In the investment community, when an investor invests in a company, either stock through equity or debt through uh, financing or capital, we have found that 25 to 30% of the investment decision is based on the perceived quality of leadership. So when I go talk to investors or venture capitalists, they say, should I buy into Amazon? Well, to be honest, Amazon doesn't have that much financial profit, but they have an incredible leadership capital. They have a great leader, Jeff Bezos, they have a leadership team, and it's that leadership capital that investors are paying for. We in HR should be bringing rigor to that index. And we should be helping investors know the quality of leadership and culture that makes that happen. So we created an index. Some of that is the individual skills of leaders, and some of that are the organizational capabilities that allow investors to have more confidence in the firm. That's an example of where I hope HR is headed. It's not. A, I did a book called The HR Scorecard with brilliant colleagues probably 20 years ago now. Today I think that book would be an embarrassment because it's not about the HR scorecard. It's about the business impact. All right. Well, this is, uh, this is all, I think, going to be very helpful to everybody. I've got a little change of topic here, but I, 
I wonder if you'd be willing to comment on some of these recent corporate blunders like Wells Fargo, Uber, and United Airlines, and what's HR's role in foreseeing and presenting these kinds of PR disasters? By the way, I've got to ask you, Steve, you see him and I see him. What would you say? You've got 33 years. You're the winner of the uh, J.D. Crane Award for Excellence in Broadcasting. Well-deserved, and, and I want to shout it out. What would you say? And I'll give you my comments if you'll share me with some of your observations. What would you say? Well, I guess I'd start out going back to where you were just a minute ago, quality the leadership and, uh, and the culture that um, – has to be focused on on the business and the customer. I I so much agree with that. I mean, you can't root out individuals who are immoral. I mean, I I was asked a number of years ago with a company that was having some really harassment problems, and some of their senior officers were doing egregious things. And you see that some with Uber, you see it some with Wells Fargo, you see it some in these companies. And my answer is I say to folks in courses where I teach who has more than 10,000 employees and somebody raises their hands, I say, you have in your company a racist. You have a sexist. No, I don't. Well, of course you do. I mean, and I'm not trying to, but just by statistical probability. The issue is can you create a culture that will not let that proceed? And so in some of the companies, pick one of those companies. Wells Fargo, it wasn't a single event. At Uber, it wasn't a single event. And it's not a single event, it's a pattern of events. And I get so frustrated with HR people who don't become the guardians of that ethical process. That Now you don't, you know, you don't stand up in a meeting and say, oh, you can't say that. But in your private discussions, you go back to that executive and say, you're judging yourself by your intent, others are judging you by your behavior. When you told that story, you probably intended to be funny. And in fact, people laughed. But let me tell you how it's going to come across. And you're going to undermine yourself. And I wish our HR people could get that part of their personal credibility, part of their success in building the right culture, is being willing to confront people that their intent is not reflected by what they do. By the way, if the leader has bad intent, and he or she is a racist or sexist, then even more cause uh, to stand up and, and be right. So I look at the cases of Wells Fargo, I look at the cases of Uber, and I say, was that an individual? And if so, let's root out that individual. Or was that endemic to the culture? Has that become a pattern? And and you can change individuals. You also have to change the patterns. All By right. the way, I just noticed your answer was 10 words. My answer was 100 words. I think you did better. Well, I'm editing. So... Um to sum this all up, any final tips you'd recommend to HR execs who are intrigued by the victory through organization concept, and I mean, other than buying the book? Um, I'm going to, given that I, I probably am close to your age, if not much older, at this stage of my life, I don't care as much if you buy the book. I care that you use the ideas. Um, now, my partners and the publisher would just scream and they'd want you to edit that out, but I hope you don't. <laughs> because if you use the ideas, the book will follow. This is a great time to be in HR. There, we have identified forces shaping the world, social, technical, economic conditions, VUCA, the pace of change, the blurring of boundaries between stakeholders, investors, customers, and employees, and the need for individuals in the world we live in today to find community and not be isolated. These forces are moving HR 
to the center discussion. You mentioned the discussion I had with Sherm that was such a delight to do a few years ago. When I meet with business leaders, like the heads of marketing last week, and I and at first they're skeptical. Oh, here comes an HR session. It's going to be policy police and administrative trivia. And you get into the issues, Steve, you've done such a good job talking about today. Their eyes light up, and they go, yeah, that's the stuff. I, I can create a purple, a red, or a pink, or a yellow strategy, but I've got to get that strategy to change how people behave, how organizations operate. HR helped me do that. And when we can do that, I think we have a great opportunity. What a great time to be in HR. Well, Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. And these are they're not only helpful insights, but I think uh, inspirational insights. So in spite of what you say, I do hope the book is a bestseller. Uh, so do we. It just got nominated for the McKinsey Award. So we're proud of the book. We're proud of the research. It's not just a random point of view. i got to say one more thing. And I know we're going a little long, so I, you know those who are still here will probably stay another minute. <laughs> we have seven rounds of data since 1987 on these competencies that Steve's been talking about. Here is the most shocking thing I, we just put together a couple weeks ago. The HR profession since 1987 through 2016 has improved dramatically on every competence. On a five-point scale, we've gone up over one full point, one full point on knowing the business. We've gone up 0.7 on change, 0.6 on managing HR. We in HR have made incredible progress as a profession, and we can document it. And it's time for us to start, you know, we don't, we're not done yet. Improvement is always in continuous and continual, and we've got to get better. But we should stop bemoaning how bad we are. We are doing great stuff as an HR profession. Well, then, uh, listeners, it's congratulations to you. Uh, but don't stop working. Let me mention one more time the title of Dave's new book. It's called Victory Through Organization, Why the War for Talent is Failing Your Company and What You Can Do About It. And uh, although, as we've heard, the book is based on rigorous research, it is not an academic tome. It's filled with practical charts, lists, tables, suggestions, and it's highly recommended. As always, please let me know what HR Works should cover next. sbruce at blr.com. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Bruce for HR Works.